Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoyed the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Uh, tonight, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 through 25, an interesting passage, and I think the title itself is a, an attention grabber, how the church should treat her leaders. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, and studying through verse 25. The Apostle Paul writes, Let the elders who rule, rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. And those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the rest also may fear. I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. Do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. Some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment, but those of some men follow later. Likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident, and those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. The passage before us tonight has an interesting convergence, because it speaks on the one hand of how it is that we should treat our ministers, and on the other hand, it addresses, interestingly, the area of church discipline. And those are two very important theological categories in the Bible. How should we treat? How should we respond to those that God has called to the leadership assignment in the church? And then secondly, how do we then implement church discipline in particular uh, as it would relate to those in leadership? And so tonight I'm going to begin by doing something I don't normally do, and that is walk you through a number of texts that address, first of all, uh, what the Bible says about how it is that we should respond and treat our leaders. And then secondly, what does the Bible say about this very important but much neglected issue called church discipline? And if you are a note taker, you can take out a pen or a pencil and you can jot these down. And if you also wish, uh, you can join me as I flip very quickly to these various texts. So first of all, what does the Bible say about how we should treat our leaders. Well, the first text that I would direct you to is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 15. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12 through verse 15. Paul, writing to the church at Thessalonica, says, And we urge you, brethren, to recognize, it means to respect, to recognize or respect, to know well those who labor among you and are over you, in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. Now, we exhort you, brethren, 
warn those who are unruly, which I think the context may imply those who are acting in an unruly fashion toward those in leadership, those that we should actually be esteeming very highly. Unfortunately, some at Thessalonica were acting toward them in an unruly fashion. So warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, uh, the patient with all, be patient with all, see that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and uh, for all. But the key phrase, of course, is verse 13, esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. And so we have First Thessalonians 5, 12 through 15. Also, we'll see in just a moment our text here in First Timothy 5, 17 through 25. But a third text is found in Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13, both verse 7 and also verse 17. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7 and also verse 17. Hebrews 13, 7. Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow considering the outcome of uh, their conduct. So remember, uh, that is hold in regard those who rule over you. And he's not here talking about those in government because he is speaking about those who have spoken the word of God to you. And then he notes, we followed them in faith considering giving attention to the outcome of their conduct. And then verse 17, perhaps the strongest in all of the New Testament concerning how we should respond to those in the leadership position of church life. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive. Why? For they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so then with joy and not with grief. For that would be unprofitable for you. So the author of Hebrews is very clear. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive. And of course, we know that the Bible speaks of those in a leadership assignment as being our shepherds. And by the very nature of that designation as shepherds, they are guiding us. Uh, They are directing us. They are protecting us. And as sheep, and by the way, I fall into the category in this church uh, of a sheep. Uh, I'm not the pastor. I'm not on staff. I'm not in a leadership assignment in this church. And so in uh, this particular uh, context, I am a sheep who is to follow the direction and live under the leadership assignment of my under-shepherd, Brother Bill, and others that God has called to the leadership assignment in the church. Now, question. Is the leadership that is to be exercised by the leaders, is that leadership without any qualification? In other words, are we to follow them? Uh, Are we to obey them? Are we to submit to them no matter what? And the answer, of course, is no. Uh, The Bible, I believe, would indicate that there are a number of occasions when we would be actually required not to follow the leadership and to submit to those that have been in authority over us by virtue of the position to which God has called them. Now, you might say, and you should say, you should ask, well, when are those occasions when we would not be obligated to obey? In fact, we'd be obligated not to obey. And I would quickly say, well, if our leadership, if our shepherds, were to ask us to do something, or they were to lead us to do something that is unbiblical, that is unethical, 
that is illegal or immoral, then I believe we would be obligated to have to say no. We would be obligated to disobey. We would be obligated actually to follow what we're going to see in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 20 and following, and we would be obligated to confront them and deal with them. Now, note again very carefully the four categories that I mentioned. If it is unbiblical, if it is unethical, if it is illegal, if it is immoral. Now, there are, of course, occasions when those things tragically happen, and a church must confront its leadership in love. However, I've been in too many churches, and I've observed too many churches where they confronted the leadership, and they disobeyed the shepherds, and they opposed those that were over them, and it was not for those things. Well, I just don't like the way he's leading. I just don't like the direction the church is going. I don't like the way that they are adjudicating the budget and spending uh, the money. Now, are they doing something illegal? No. Immoral? No. Unethical? No. Unbiblical? No. I just don't like it. Well, you know what? you got a problem. And your problem is not with your shepherd. Your problem is with the great shepherd. The Lord Jesus. And I will tell you something. At that point, you have now stepped into a serious world of sin and potential judgment. And the fact of the matter is, unfortunately, all across our Southern Baptist Convention and all across the evangelical world and all across churches and other other denominations in America, God has written over the door, Ichabod, the glory has departed. And in so many cases, in a lot of cases is because the church mistreated those that God had divinely, sovereignly called to a leadership assignment in that church, and God has judged them, and as it says in Revelation, He has removed their candlestick, He has removed their effectiveness because of the way they treated the man of God that God had placed in their midst. But now, having said that, and again, I'm grateful that we're here part of a church that doesn't act like that toward its leadership, It is the case that sometimes even those in leadership get off course. And those in leadership begin to walk a path of sinfulness. And the Bible has a lot to say about how it is that we are to deal with anyone. And then specifically, how do we deal with someone in leadership? Now, again, what are the texts specifically in the Bible that deal with the issue of church discipline? Well, you actually have a chart on the back side of your outline that will give you those references. But let me give them to you again anyway, that you might jot them down somewhere or at least take note of them as I very quickly cite each one of them. Of course, the first is found on the lips of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 15, 16, and 17, and listen to what the Lord Jesus said about the issue of church discipline. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two, uh, one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And we're going to see that same principle in just a moment in First Timothy chapter 5. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. So you start with one, 
If you won't hear the one, you go with two or three. If you'll not hear the two or three, then you're to bring him before the church. And verse 17, but if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector, which means you are to cast him out and treat him like an unbeliever. Take your Bible, if you're following with me, and turn and note 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul has to deal, unfortunately, with the unseemly situation of a man in an incestuous relationship with his stepmother. He's living with his stepmother. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul writes to the church at Corinth, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And such sexual immorality as it is not even named among the Gentiles. Even the pagans don't do this. That is, that a man is with his father's wife. And, amazingly, you're puffed up. You're arrogant and prideful about this. And have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be what? Taken away from among you. For I indeed... As absent in body, I'm not there, but I'm present in spirit. I have already judged as though I were present him who has so done this deed. And so here is Paul's apostolic uh, pronouncement of judgment upon this man who is in a continuous, unrepentant, public state of sin with his stepmother. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. When you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. In other words, you turn him out of the church. He loses the privilege of church membership and he loses the blessings of being in and uh, cared for in the family of God. Verse 6, your glory is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? You let this guy continue in your midst like that, and his sin will spread like gangrene. It will indeed, like a little leaven in the lump, cause the whole thing to expand. Therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, the old lifestyle, not uh, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, I read on because Paul gets specific for us. Verse 9. I wrote to you in my epistle. So Paul actually wrote a letter before 1 Corinthians that was not preserved. I wrote to you in my epistle. Not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet, I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. So, Paul, are we to engage lost people? Yes. Fellowship with lost people? Yes. Eat with them? Yes. Go to the ball game with them? Yes. Hang out with them? Yes. How are you going to win them to Christ unless you spend time with them? All right? That's what he's saying. However, verse 11, But now I have written to you not to keep company 
with anyone named a brother. He says, I'm a Christian. I, I'm a brother. I, I'm a sister. I'm a follower of Christ. Don't you keep company with anyone who, and all these imply this is what they are in a continuous lifestyle of doing, who is sexually immoral, who is covetous, who is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, an extortioner. No, you should not even eat with such a person. Four, what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? And the answer is, I don't judge people outside the church. That's not our domain. That's not our business. That's not our calling. Do you not then judge those who are inside? And the answer is yes. Just like a good, godly family will take care of one another, the family of God will also take care of one another, even to the point of exercising discipline. Verse 13. But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves this evil person. Now, for time's sake, I'll just also note for your benefit. Write down 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Because there, Paul, I think, deals with this situation in that the man that had been living in sin had repented. And he had asked to be restored to the church. And amazingly, in 1 Corinthians... They were just letting him sin and stay a part of the church. Then when Paul says, kick him out, they kicked him out. He comes back and says, you're right, I'm wrong, I repent. And they say, well, we ain't going to let you back in. And Paul, in essence, basically says, you bozos, you swing from one extreme to the other. If he's in habitual, unrepentant sin, he needs to be removed. If, however, he repents and he demonstrates that he has repented, then let him back in, forgive him, and restore him. And so I think that Paul, we can't prove it, but I think Paul is responding in Second Corinthians to the same situation. And again, the Corinthians just went from one extreme to the other. And then there's one other text where the Bible speaks especially about those who are divisive or divisive doctrinally. That is found in Titus chapter 3, verses 9 through 11. Titus chapter 3, verses 9 10 and 11. So again, I'll let you simply note those on your own. Now, let's return to our text this evening with that kind of as a rather uh, broad overview of what the Bible has to say about how do we treat our leaders? What does the Bible say about church discipline? And now Paul applies uh, or addresses both of those issues here in this text. And the first thing he says is this. We should reward generously those who serve. And he speaks very specifically to their remuneration. He says there in verse 17, Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. Paul begins by telling us to reward generously those who serve, and he points out, first of all, that those who are in leadership assignment, the elders, are called to teach. Let the elders, and let me stop there. The Bible uses three different words interchangeably for those who are called to the leadership assignment in the church. Uh, there's the word uh, presbyteros. We get our word presbyterian from it. That is the word translated elder. It speaks of an older man. 
But in the context of church leadership, it speaks of an older man who by his age demands respect, who by his age and maturity is worthy of our following. All right. There's also the word episkopos. We get our word episcopalian from it. That is the word that back in chapter three and verse one was translated bishop or overseer. But it's very clear that Paul is talking about the same leadership assignment both in 1 Timothy 3 and 1 Timothy 5. It's just in chapter 3, he calls them bishops. And in chapter 5, he calls them elders. And then the third word, which we're most familiar with, is the word poimen, which is translated pastor. But very interestingly, that particular word, when applied to the leadership assignment in the church, only occurs one time in the New Testament. That is found in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11, where the Bible speaks of the pastor teacher. And so it's interesting that we go primarily by the designation pastor, but that is the word least used in the New Testament. But my point is this, an elder is a bishop, is a pastor, is an elder. It is talking about the same position using interchangeable words to speak of different facets of their assignment and different facets of their character as they lead the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let the elders who rule well. And by the way, you should mark that phrase and note back in chapter 3 and verse 5 that Paul speaks very clearly to the fact that one of the ways an elder demonstrates his qualifications to lead the church is by the way that he leads, or if you like, by the way he rules his home. In fact, look at chapter 3, verse 5. If a man does not know how to, same word, rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? And so the Bible says in the same way that a godly husband, father, leads his church, a godly elder, pastor, overseer is going to lead the local church as well. So once more in verse 17 of chapter 5, let the elders who rule well be worthy of a double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. And again, you should note chapter 3, verse 2, where the Bible makes it very clear that those called to the leadership assignment of the church must be what? Able to teach. Now, question. What does Paul mean by the phrase double honor? Does Paul mean that we should pay those who do a good job twice as much? Well, there are some people that actually believe that that is what the phrase means, though I would disagree. Now, don't misunderstand me. Uh, do I believe that those who rule well and those who especially among the elders labor in the word and doctrine, do I believe that they are worthy of double honor and that part of that honor means we take care of them financially? and that we take care of them financially in a good way, and that we do not try to keep, and again, I'm not being paid for this. Uh, in fact, I have absolutely no idea what we pay any of our staff. I have no idea. Uh, I care, but obviously not enough to find out, but I do know this. Uh, we better be doing good at it. We better be doing it well. Uh, we don't want to be as some churches do. We want to keep our, our pastors as poor as Job's turkey because that'll keep them humble. Well, I got news for you and for me. It's not our job to keep them humble. That's God's job. 
Our responsibility is to love them. Our responsibility is to pray for them. Our responsibility is to follow them. And our responsibility is to provide for them. And the text says if they are good leaders, then they are worthy of double honor. I think the phrase double honor means on the one hand, their compensation. And on the other hand, our submission. That's what I think is meant by the phrase double honor. We are to honor them by taking care of them, and we're to honor them by following them. And therefore, there is the double honor that I believe uh, Paul is getting at when he addresses us here in verse 17. They're called to teach. They're called to instruct us in doctrine. They are caring, as Hebrews 13 says, for our souls. And therefore, we should honor them in a double kind of a way, taking good care of them financially and taking care of them in terms of following their leadership as well. They are called to teach and should be rewarded generously when they do it well. Secondly, they are also directed to work. For he says in verse 18, for the scripture says... You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Now, Dr. Lanier would point out for us very clearly tonight and very importantly that this is a very valuable verse when it comes to the doctrine of biblical inspiration. You say, why? Well, when he says, for the scripture says, he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 25 and verse 4. You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Now, you say, so uh, Paul is comparing my pastor to an ox. No, he's not comparing Brother Bill or any of our other staff to an ox. What he's doing is drawing upon a principle that is self-evident from the Old Testament. That is this. Those who work are worthy of being compensated. And an ox that is muzzling or that is treading out the grain should every now and then have the muzzle removed so he can get him something to eat. That's all he's saying. Those who work are worthy of being cared for. And so there's just a principle. If, if an ox in the field is taken care of when he works, how much more should those who labor in the word and doctrine be taken care of for their work? And so he quotes just a general kind of principle found in Deuteronomy chapter 25 and verse 4. But now here's what's interesting. That next phrase, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. You'll not find that statement in the Old Testament. But you will find it in Luke chapter 10 and verse 7 on the lips of Jesus. And what you have Paul doing here is putting already... On an equal standing, the Old Testament scriptures and the words of, in other words, the words of Jesus. Now you say that's not a big deal. I would beg to differ. You know how sacredly they revered the law of Moses and the writings of the prophets. And yet Paul is saying in the same way that you revere the word of God in the Old Testament, you revere the words of Jesus because Jesus himself said in Luke 10, 7, the laborer is worthy of his wages. And so they are working for us. They are laboring for us. They especially do so in the word and doctrine, and therefore we should reward them generously. He then says also in verse 18, they are entitled to a salary. The laborer is worthy 
of his wages. So, those who teach the word, those who are working on our behalves, they are entitled to be cared for by the church in a double kind of a way, both in terms of their finances, a remuneration, and also in terms of respect. We trust them, we follow them, we submit to them. Now, praise God when a church has a good pastor a good elder, a good overseer. Praise God when a man spends a lifetime with integrity and with respect and with holiness and with godliness. But tragically, tragically, sometimes ministers fall by the wayside and get into sin. And I've actually heard some, usually it's a minister, say, well, touch not God's anointed. Touch not God's anointed. Which, if I remember correctly, comes both out of the Old Testament and was a reference to the king of Israel, not to the pastor or the overseer or the elder who leads the church. Rather, the Bible has a very specific word and a very specific plan of how it is that we would indeed deal with a leader in the church who tragically has gotten involved in sin. There are four steps to it that you see there in verses 19, 20, and 21. First of all, Paul says, get all the facts. Verse 19, do not receive an accusation against an elder except, same phrase you heard on the lips of Jesus back in Matthew 18, except from two are three witnesses. This is a principle found in Deuteronomy chapter 17 and verse 6. Again in Deuteronomy chapter 19 and verse 15. And reiterated as we saw a moment ago by Jesus in Matthew 18 and verse 16. In other words, if you're going to bring an accusation against an elder, there must be multiple witnesses. One is not enough. One is not enough. There must be two and preferably three who can validate and verify the truthfulness of the accusation that's being brought against a leader in the church. So get all the facts. But if the facts are clear, and this elder is indeed guilty of sin, and again, can't be dogmatic here, so I want to make a distinction here, but I believe the Bible again makes it clear that the kind of sin that we're to deal with is sin that is public, it is sin that is serious, and it is sin that is unrepented of. Public, in other words, we're not to be garbage can inspectors. God never calls us to do that. It is just sin that people know about, that they become aware of it. And it is sin that, unfortunately, he is not repenting of, and therefore it is of a serious sort. So at that point, number two, we confront them to the face. Verse 20, those who are sinning. Note the present tense there. Those who are sinning, rebuke in the presence of all. Rebuke in the presence of all. So, they're sinning. They're not repentant. People know about it. It's of a serious nature. Paul says, and Paul is assuming, I believe, that you've already gone one-on-one -on -one and they told you to stick it in your ear. You've now gone back with two or three and you've confronted him again. And again, he has said, stick it in your ear. So after confronting him one on one, confronting him with multiple witnesses, if he does not hear you at that point as painful, 
and as unpalatable and as distasteful as it can possibly be, you have to bring it before the church. Now, you say, have you seen that done? Not very often. Because most Christians don't have the stomach for it. And they will excuse themselves by saying, well, you know, the loving. No, 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 no. The loving thing is not to wink at sin. The loving thing is not to sweep sin under the rug. That is not the loving thing. That's the cowardly thing. That's the chicken's way out. The loving thing is to go to him, go again and again. And if not being heard, then tragically, unfortunately, you bring it before the church. You confront them to the face. That phrase in the presence of all, some think it only means the other elders. I personally believe the best understanding is you bring him before all. You bring the sinning elder before the whole church. I do have a friend, by the way, uh, named Dr. James Merritt, who several years ago had a minister in his church that was guilty of multiple acts of adultery. He was finally uh, confronted. Uh, he confessed. And so in three Morning services. Now, just to put it on the table, the guy that uh, had been caught in this sin uh, said he was not going to allow the church to publicly rebuke him and restore him, to which Dr. Merritt said, fine, uh, you'll be terminated and you'll be terminated with no compensation whatsoever. On the other hand, you follow the biblical instruction and we'll take care of you and your wife and your kids for several months. We'll provide health insurance. So he didn't do it out of the pure motive. But here's my point. On a Sunday morning, Dr. Merritt brought him up on the platform, publicly rebuked him before the entire church. Didn't go into the specifics of his sin, but rebuked him for serious, uh, immoral activity against the church. Then forgave him, then restored him to the fellowship and then fired him. Now, he still compensated him for the six months. You say, you think, he, oh, I know good and well he should have fired him. In fact, as far as I'm concerned, the man's probably disqualified for life from ministry. My point is, by the way, you say, how did the people respond? Well, at first they were angry at Dr. Merritt. That was mean. You shouldn't have done that. That was unkind. And at first, and almost always people respond this way. Their initial response was to feel sorry for this serial fornicating adulterer. But after about two weeks, they no longer were mad at uh, Dr. Merritt. They were now mad at this man. And not only did they want him fired, they basically wanted him tarred and feathered, which again just shows you the fickleness of human personality that we just can't get it right, can we? We don't have the guts to deal with someone that's in sin like that. And then later we decide not only do we want to get a pound of flesh, we want to take their heads off. And either extreme is unbiblical. Either extreme is unbiblical. Here the Bible says he doesn't repent, he doesn't receive your confrontation, then you are to confront him to the face. Number three, recognize the value of fear. Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all, what? That the rest also may fear. In other words, if a church has the Christian courage to do that with one of their leaders. What will they do with you if you get into the same lifestyle of sin? You're going to be up here as well. Are you going to be out there treated as an outcast? But if they will deal with the, the, the those on the highest level of leadership, 
then they'll also be willing to deal with anyone else in the body as well. And so there is a positive value to fear when it comes to church discipline. Then number four, do everything with fairness. So I think Paul recognized that we have a tendency to be uh, to be partial. Uh, we have a tendency to act with prejudice. And so he says in verse 21, I charge you. This, this is a solemn word. I charge you before who? Three, God, number one. The Lord Jesus Christ, number two, and the elect angels, that is saved angels in contrast to fallen angels who are demons. I charge you before God, the Lord Jesus, and the elect angels that you observe these things. How, Paul? Without prejudice, number one, doing nothing with partiality. I know of a church in Dallas several years ago. Again, Dr. Lanier and I were there at the same time, so he would know of whom I speak. And uh, this pastor had been guilty of multiple, multiple, multiple acts of adultery with multiple women in the church. And the deacons knew about it and they swept it under the rug. Why? Because church was growing. Church had gone from 1,000 to 2,000, from 2,000 to 3,000, from 3,000 to 4,000. The money was flowing in. People were joining the church. And so basically they took him aside and said, bad preacher, don't do that anymore. And, of course, what's the preacher going to say? I'm sorry. I won't do it again. And, of course, what do you think happened? He did it again. And again. And again. And again. In fact, he finally was exposed because one of his mistresses found out that he was cheating on her with another mistress. And she exposed him. The scorn of a woman, boys. You say, what eventually happened to this man? I think God killed him because he died suddenly in his early 50s of a brain aneurysm. I think he committed sin unto death. I think God took him. My point being, again, that the church brings no honor to God when they don't deal with sin in that kind of way. And when they do it, either with prejudice or partiality. No, 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 no. I don't care who it is. It can be the most famous pastor in the town. It can be the most famous evangelist. It doesn't matter. The Bible says we treat everyone without prejudice and everyone without partiality. And we rebuke publicly those who sin. Then finally, we review carefully those that you see. He now moves to the fact that, you know what, you might avoid some of this if you're more careful and cautious in terms of who you put in leadership assignment. He's already told us back in chapter 3 that we should not put anyone that is a novice in the position of an overseer because they will be puffed up with pride and fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Here he says in verse 22 through the end as we close, do not lay hands on anyone hastily. Because if you do, you're going to share in other people's, at least potentially, share in their sins. And so you want to keep yourself pure. He's just very practical. He says, someone that's a new believer, don't move quickly. Someone you don't know well. Someone moves into this church. They've been here three or four months. Uh, They come across nice. They give a lot of money. And they say, you know, I was a leader in the previous church. Oh, great. We need more leaders. Let's make him a deacon. Let's put him. No, 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 no. You don't know that person. You're not familiar with their track record. Paul says, do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sins, which the idea is you lay hands on them hastily, they fall into sin, and you share in their sin. So keep yourself pure. 
Another word of admonition. It's almost like little short staccato statements here. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and for your frequent infirmities. There are a couple of observations we can make here. Number one, it's very clear that Timothy was a total abstainer. He did not drink wine. But because he had stomach problems and because the water in that world was impure and problematic and could cause all sorts of maladies, including uh, dysentery, Paul says, look, you need to drink a little wine for medicinal purposes. It will help your stomach. And so he is told there to engage in that kind of activity, not in the terms of getting drunk or getting a buzz, but in terms of it helping him physically and medicinally. Verse 24, some men's sins are clearly evident. You don't have to take very much time to watch them. They'll sin boldly and they'll sin publicly. Some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to the judgment. But those of some men follow later, which is why he's again saying, don't lay hands on someone prematurely. Don't do it hastily because some people look good on the front side. But they're not very pretty on the back side. And the fact of the matter is, we need to be cautious and careful in terms of putting anyone on any level in positions of influence and leadership in a local church. Finally, he says, likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident. And those that are otherwise, it can't be hidden. The test of time will eventually bring everything to light and make everything clear. So if you look on the chart that you were given tonight as we close... I can walk you in one minute through how we deal with the sins of a leader. If you look at the middle of the page, top of the page, where it says an act of sin, we become aware of a believer's sin based upon Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 5, excuse me. So what do we do? We first of all pray for the offender and we try to step in and bring about their correction. How do we do that? Number one, with a private confrontation. Moving to the right, position of the offender. He's a leader. We become aware of their sin. We have prayed for them. We have moved to correct them. We do so, first of all, by a private confrontation. If they repent, then you drop all the way down on the right-hand side, and there's a public public acknowledgement of their repentance and their restoration. There's a restoration of relationships. Uh, they're restored to the fellowship. They're forgiven. We comfort them. We reaffirm them with love. And there will be the restoration of trust and reputation and possibly restoration to their office of leadership. Though in some cases, I believe sin can be so grievous that they have indeed disqualified themselves for life. You say, why do you say that? Because the very first qualification for a leader in the church is that he must be above reproach. That is, no one has any question about his character, his morality, or his reputation. So you're guilty of, a, of adultery. But your wife stays with you and forgives you. You come before the church and you confess your sin. And the church uh, expresses their forgiveness. And they restore you to uh, the fellowship. Question. How long does it take you to get your reputation back when you've been guilty of adultery? Well, I know at least this is true. A long time. If ever. A long time, if ever. And so I'll be the first to tell you that these men that have been guilty of immorality, that are suddenly put back into positions of leadership in three months, six months, a year, personally, I think, one, it's unbiblical. And even if it wasn't unbiblical, I would tell you it's unwise. And it is a foolish thing to do. Otherwise, as you see in the text, you confront them and they don't repent. Then you appeal to witnesses, First Timothy 5.19. 
You publicly rebuke them, 1 Timothy 5.20. And then tragically, there is community expulsion and the disassociation of them, though even if we have to turn them out of the fellowship, we still love them, we still admonish them, and we still pray that God will bring repentance and brokenness into their heart and into their life. And that, my brothers and sisters, is how we are to treat those that God has placed in leadership over us. Let's pray. Father, this has been a very instructional time tonight. I pray it's been helpful and profitable. And, Lord, this is not the kind of text that you would just jump into on a Sunday morning, though it might not be bad for us to cover it on a Sunday morning sometime. But, Lord, for those of us who come on Wednesday nights who are kind of the core of the church, who take very seriously your word, very seriously our responsibilities, and who really want to be biblical in all that we do, both in attitude and action, it has helped for us to understand that it is a good thing for us to be um, to honor those in leadership, to be gracious in terms of providing for them financially, and also, Lord, to be faithful in submitting to their leadership and direction. And then, Lord, also it is wise for us to remember that if we really love them, when we see them sin, first and foremost, we'll go to them privately, not making a show or a spectacle, but going privately to try to win our brother and to bring about uh, forgiveness, restoration, and repentance. But, Lord, ultimately, if they don't, then we do you no honor and we do them no good by once more sweeping the sin under the rug or turning our back to it. No, in love, in heartbrokenness, carefully and sincerely, we confront them because we love them. And we seek under your lordship to bring again a repentance and restoration and reconciliation made possible by the precious blood of Jesus. So, Lord, thank you that we are family. Help us to keep in mind that that's the way we should relate to one another, relating and treating one another as brothers and sisters for whom we have great, great affection. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.